You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It's February the 10th, the time is 4.03, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Martha Donna-Storg, bringing you a love-themed Eye on the Triangle on this fine Wednesday. In honor of Valentine's Day this Sunday, we are exploring love in all its forms. Romantic love, familial love, love that's ended, and even love from your community. Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review. This week he reviews I Love You, Honey Bear, the newest album by Father John Misty. And Jake Winters brings you Snow Verated. This week he reviews the film The Fifth Element. Marissa Jordan talked with students about what they think about Valentine's Day, and Aubrey Lewis reads poetry on Nikita Chindalapudi's Poetry Corner. Cameron Dolacek has our newest segment, Explain It to Me Like I'm 88. He's talking to Sarah Evans, a graduate student at NC State, researching how couples who play together... Uh, who play video games fair romantically. And Mirtha has a look at our three winners' memorials. I guess you can say if they play together, they stay together. But we'll also have the community calendar from Peter Suzani, and as always, Saif Hassan brings you the news beyond the headlines. But right now, let's take a look at the weather with our newest contributor, Michael Ashburn. For tonight, expect a low of 23. Thursday and Friday will bring highs in the low 40s and lows in the mid-20s, with sunshine tomorrow and clouds Friday. This weekend will be cold, with highs in the low 30s and lows around 20. However, if you need to warm up this weekend, there are some fire bands playing Double Barrel Benefit Saturday night at King's, so be sure to break out your favorite sweater and buy your tickets at WKNC.org. With the weather for Eye on the Triangle, this is Michael Ashburn. Valentine's Day, like it or not, rears its head every February. Opinions often vary about this holiday, so I decided to walk around campus to find out the general consensus among NC State students. I knew the topic of Valentine's Day might be a potentially awkward one, especially for college students, but I was surprised at the number of people who had sweet things to say. Hey, I'm Katie. My major is food science nutrition. I think that Valentine's Day is about caring for the ones that you're supposed to care about on a daily basis, but I guess make it more of like a commercialized effort. Hey, my name is Mike Morocco. Uh, I'm a sophomore in the College of Education, and I think Valentine's Day is sick. I think it's a really great holiday to spoil your significant other. Like, I think it's, I love love, so I think that's like the coolest thing. All right, my name is Brandon. My major is mechanical engineering, and I think that Valentine's Day is a good way to show your significant other that you care about him or her. And my skateboard is my Valentine. Other students had different thoughts on the commercial aspects of Valentine's Day. I'm Shika, I'm a human biology major, and my favorite thing about Valentine's Day is getting the chocolate the next day for half off. So I'm Robert, and I love Valentine's Day, but I think it's been perverted into a capitalistic ploy by the sugar fat cats in the US to continue and increase our dependence on foreign chocolate and sugary goods. And it'll keep burdening the U.S. populace into an unfillable hole of obesity and sloth. I'm Noah, and I'm in mechanical engineering. And I just, I really love Valentine's Day because I think capitalism is supreme. And I just love showing my love to my significant others by, you know, buying them things. I'm Jacob. I am a chem major. And I guess it's just like a ploy to make more money off of cards and chocolate. And then, of course, I like discounted chocolate as well. I think it's a good idea to have like a celebration of that, but it's basically just a marketing tool, I think, at this point, to sell candy and cards and flowers and stuff. Some students didn't really have an opinion on the holiday. I'm Jeffrey Sisson. I'm an undecided engineer. Uh, Valentine's Day is nice. It's, I don't know, it's, in, it's kind of without it, nothing would happen in February. And finally, one student, Bailey, wanted to leave me with some Valentine's Day advice. I'm Bailey Blankenship, and I'm a first-year student in electrical engineering, and I'm going to share top five favorite love jams for Valentine's Day. So number one is definitely a Climax by Usher. 
Number two, probably gotta be Coffee by Miguel. Coming in at number three, we have Prime Time by Janelle Monet. Uh, Weave by Jira Me. Oh, and then The Fix by Nelly. Gotta have Nelly on Valentine's Day. Unfortunately, it seems that most NC State students have a negative view on this holiday. However, I think it's important to interpret Valentine's Day in whatever light you choose, whether it be discounted chocolate, love for your significant other, or just as something that defines the month of February. Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Everyone has a story to tell, but how they tell it differs. Whether you're a poet, spoken word artist, singer, an actor, a musician, everyone has that story to tell. And here is the place to tell it. Welcome to Poetry Corner. Hey guys, today I have Aubrey Lewis here with me today, and she's a junior studying English and French. Aubrey, thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be here. Aubrey and I actually have had our introductory and our intermediate poetry workshop classes together at State, so I've had the chance to read a lot of her work over the past years, and it is phenomenal, so I'm really excited to have her. Aubrey, what do you have for us today? Uh, I have a short collection of poems, and the first one is called The Sun and the Moon. When the rain turns to ice, shattering against my skin like glass, think of me there, teeth chattering to an unknown rhythm, numb fingers tying silk ribbons into knots, wishing on a star I can't quite see, trusting my fate will be taken care of by one dot in a field of millions. I'm reaching for the moon, and I want you beside me. When the wind shapes the wheat into a storm of honey waves, think of me there, back against the ground, with my face towards the sky, hair tangled in the dirt beneath me, bare feet digging into soft soil as if it were sand on a beach. I am reaching for the sun, and I want you beside me. All right, this is an untitled poem. When you've been up for days, and the sunlight feels like flicks of flame on your body, melting you to the core. When you think you've lost it all on a bad gamble of words, too harsh even for your own ears. When you can't stand the sight of me, I'll still love you. When our song plays on the radio, and you change the station, so you don't have to sing along. When I won't give you your space, and you shove me back a step, but I grab your wrist just before I fall. When you're sick and tired of my voice, I'll still love you. When I forget your birthday, and you try not to act mad as I tell you, I'll make it up to you at Christmas. When we haven't spoken in a while, and I think you've forgotten me, or replaced me with someone better, when we lose what brought us together, just know that I'll always love you. All right, this one's called Modu, which means soft words in French. Honey-glazed words spill through your lips, sticking fast against my cheek. But I'll be the last to admit that I've got a sweet tooth. Okay, this is titled Pockets Full of Stones. They buried her in the rain that day, laid her into the earth and clay to feed the flowers next springtime. Bones rattle in their coffins like chimes. Welcome to eternity, they say. She lives here now, pale skin turned gray, a husk of a girl who drowned in the bay, sank deep below to the mud and grime, pockets full of stones she plucked. She'd washed up on the shore last May, amongst the pearly shells on display, whispers of youth lost in its prime, pink ribbon soiled with dirt and slime, still tucked in her hair, yellow as hay, pockets full of stones she plucked. This one's titled Deception. I wish I'd known your heart was made of soot before I went and gave you mine that day. Dented and scratched, no more love underfoot. You returned it to me, not red, but gray. Silver tongue forged in brimstone and venom. Your words could bring me to my knees in pain. A gold-spun smile you used as your weapon. You brought me down, sent poison through my veins. To think you had me so well ensnared, Wrapped in your arms, a caress turned deadly. You swallowed me whole with nothing to spare, just another victim in your medley. I fell so fast without ever knowing. You had me fooled, 
a snake in prince's clothing. That's perfect. That last poem is great for all the jaded lovers out there this Valentine's Day. But thank you for reading those. It was wonderful. I know we asked you to pick some poems that were kind of more related to the themes of love and your idea of love and relationships just because Valentine's Day is coming up. Um, but in general, what would you say are some of the themes that you try and draw on in general when you write your poetry? Um, I really like to draw on, you know, common things from real life that you can find out there. Anything that you can see or touch, I like to incorporate those in my poems. A lot of like really um, identifiable things that everyone can, can relate to. Yeah, or things that you often maybe overlook, like a yeah. flower on a tree or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, like the small details. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. When did you kind of like start your poetry writing? Is that something you've always done? Is that something you got interested in when you came here? Well, my mom's an English teacher, so I've I've grown up, you know, around English and writing. But I sort of I got started doing poetry in high school. Oh, cool. What was that like? doing poetry in high school? I mean, we didn't have that many assignments, so mm -hmm. it was kind of just me on my own, doing my own poetry. And, uh, but I mean, it was fun. I kept a little journal of stuff, so. <laughs> That's nice. Do you feel like once you've come to state, your poetry has kind of changed and as you've like taken classes and had a more formal approach to it? Yeah, definitely. I really think the, um, the classes with Nora Shepard and John Balaban yeah. have really helped me improve my writing. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Do you know kind of what you want to do with it in the future? I know right now you're mostly focusing your studies on French. How do you feel like poetry is going to play a role in your life later on? I think, I'd, I mean, I'd like to publish eventually, but, you know, it's more something personal for me, so mm -hmm. I do it for my own enjoyment. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, that's what art is all about, really, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. You've been listening to Poetry Corner. This is Nikita Chintalapudi with Eye on the Triangle. Hi, I'm Cameron Dolacek, and this is the first installment of Explain It to Me Like I'm 88. For this segment, I bring in PhD students from around NC State to explain their research in a way that people who are not familiar with the field will understand. In honor of this Valentine's Day-themed Eye on the Triangle, I've brought in Sarah Evans to explain her research. I'm Sarah Evans, a second-year PhD student in the Communication, Rhetoric, and Digital Media program. Sarah, you research how couples who play video games fare romantically. What led you to that study? So... I did my master's at Syracuse University, and when I started it, I was studying social media, but I'd always played video games, and I just never realized that it was something that I could actually study, and pretty much when I found that out, I was like, well, I can make my hobby into something that I do all the time now, so I'm going to do that. So I did my master's thesis on uh, the ways that video games can kind of teach us things, like ethics or, you know empathy, anything like that. But basically I was looking at what unique qualities do games have that can help us learn better or maybe not better, but differently. And so how does that apply to couples and your research now? So when I got accepted to NC State University, uh, I was awarded the Provost Fellowship, which allowed me to work with two scholars, Nick Taylor and Liz Craig, who are already here kind of embroiled in this research. And, uh, I got to work with them on a study that looks at couples who play League of Legends specifically together. How do you use League of Legends to determine how video games affect couples? So there are relatively few studies on couples who play video games, and the ones that do exist focus on couples who play games that have persistent worlds. So even when you leave the game, the world is still there. So World of Warcraft would be one of those games. So basically they're role-playing, you go in, you get to customize your character, and you can pretty much do whatever you want. There are objectives that you can pursue, but you can also completely ignore them and kind of just live in the world. So we wanted to look at what happens when couples play a game with more stringent um, standards about what you need to do in the game. So we're looking at couples who play League of Legends, which is a MOBA, so multiplayer online battle arena. And that means it's uh, two teams of player-controlled avatars that are basically trying to get to the other team's home base. Um, 
the matches tend to last about half an hour and they can be extremely intense. Uh, additionally, League of Legends specifically, but pretty much all MOBAs, are known for having extremely toxic communities. And, you know, so people are, even with your own teammates, you know, generally with your own teammates, people are just, you know, screaming at you and telling you that you're horrible and telling you to uninstall your game. Um, and so we were wondering why would couples who theoretically, you know, love each other and want to stay together, put themselves in a situation where that kind of negative communication is happening. And so how did you investigate that and what did you find? Sure. So we created a survey and then distributed it on the NCSU Facebook page for our League of Legends team, the League of Legends Reddit, and a few other places online. And we asked participants who took this survey to think about their relationship and indicate how strongly they agreed with a series of statements. Um, so things like, I love my partner, I'm passionate about my partner. Um, and then we asked some open-ended questions. So please describe some challenges that you face when playing League of Legends with your partner, or please explain some benefits that you get from playing League of Legends with your partner. So then we got about 33 responses and we took those, we looked at what we got from them and we coded them. So we did that by using a, um, an existing scale. So it's basically a relational maintenance strategies measure is what it's called in, you know, fancy terms, but it's essentially saying like, are these four, which I'm going to say, um, elements in existence in these statements. So do you see positivity? Do you see assurances, which are messages that under, that you know emphasize the couple's commitment to pursuing this relationship and continuing it? Social networks. So uh, do the do the does the couple have a shared friend group or you know do they like each other's friends and joint activities? So do the couples do things together essentially? So we looked for um, responses that specifically pointed these things out. So for example, joint activities, obviously if they're playing the game together, they're doing a joint activity. But we looked for responses that specifically mentioned, you know, it's something we can do together. We have fun playing together. And so we compared these results to the survey questions about you know, the relational quality. So overall, we did find that people indicated that their relationship was really good. So on a five point scale, they averaged out to 4.5. So that's super duper high. Um, and then from those things that we coded, we found a lot of benefits that people got. So we did find that they found positivity. They found these assurances. The social networks and joint activities were two of the things that we found most. So people were saying that they enjoyed playing the game with their partner because it was something they could do with their larger group of friends. And additionally, it was just something they could do together because about, um, I think a quarter to half of the people that we got as participants were actually in long distance relationships. So this was a way of them to be together without physically being together in the same room. You described League of Legends as a very intense game. Surely this must put some strain on the couples and their relationship. So these couples did also, you know, so it's not all, you know, ponies and rainbows. These these couples did see challenges and these were essentially attributing blame. Uh, so when things did go south, when, you know, screaming matches did break out over the course of the game, um, these couples said that, you know, they, they attributed blame for whose fault it was that this negative communication was happening. So some examples of these are, you know, he's so good and I'm not that good, but we work really together, really good together, which is amazing. So this partner said that the person they're playing with is really good and they're not. But, you know, so even though they're saying this negative thing, overall, it's a good experience. Another one that, you know, shows really the ultimate dark side of this type of relational activity. Um, we rarely argue normally, but when we play League, we're both terrible, selfish people. So anyone who plays any of these types of games probably completely understands that situation. For people who don't, um, I can say from experience that sometimes you just turn into a different person when things get so intense. And another one would be, 
sometimes she rages, but that gets settled down. She's working on it. So this one is saying, you know, my partner gets really upset when we're playing, but I see that she's working on it. So overall, it's okay. So despite the challenges that some couples did report facing, these same couples reported high relational quality in terms of feeling satisfaction, positivity, intimacy, um, trust, those types of things. So even though some bad things do come of it, ultimately, we did find that couples who play together tend to stay together. Thank you, Sarah, for coming in and explaining how video games affect couples romantically for this Valentine's Day episode of Eye on the Triangle. My name is Cameron Dolacek. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Valentine's Day this coming Sunday, and I bet you can guess what that means. Go ahead, shout your answer into the radio. If you said abject misery, more crap to deal with, corporate BS, or contractually obligated Valentine's-themed episodes, then you guessed correctly. Yes, indeed, it is true, I absolutely hate Valentine's Day. I'll be honest, it's totally because I'm single and hate seeing other people a thousand times happier than me, but... Let's just pretend that it's because of the corporate BS thing, eh? No? Okay, fine, I'll stay honest about it. In keeping with that theme, then, it should be no surprise that reviewing today's album, Father John Misty's I Love You, Honey Bear, was absolutely laborious for me. This album incorporates everything that could possibly make someone who hates Valentine's Day infuriated and distraught at the same time starting right off with the name. I think I Love You, Honey Bear is about as sappy as it gets. It's exactly the sort of thing you would make fun of a young couple for saying, but I guess Misty just gets a free pass. Why not? Anyone listening to a Father John Misty album knows what they're getting into. This is not a man who writes about happy fun times in the sun alone or with platonic friends. This is a man who writes about depressingly intense love. How can love be depressing, you ask? Aside from the obvious reply of, I'm single, damn it, it's because this album isn't just a romantic ode to great sex and terrible chocolates. It's a concept album chronicling the entirety of Misty's relationship with his wife, including both the good times and the very, very bad times. And to be frank, the good times sound pretty much like the bad times. That's a nice talent you have there, Mr. Misty. The album itself is beautiful, with very personal, heartfelt lyrics and emotional, complex string accompaniment on every song. I can hear the longing in his voice on every track, and it makes me want to either curl up in a ball or gouge my ears out. I don't know which. I'll figure it out later. The album starts off describing how Misty and his wife met, and ends in the present day where they've accepted their lives together. No, wait, that's not quite right. It actually ends chronicling the possible future where Misty and his wife grow old and die together while contemplating the day they met. Which is like... Dude, come on, that's some pretty heavy stuff. I get that it's a super personal album, but you're bumming me out even more than I expected, which is saying something. At any rate, emotion achieved, Misty. Bravo. In complete fairness to the album, it is absolutely brilliant. It's rhythmically complex, and the composition has more than enough layers to qualify as complex as well. The strings, as I said before, are brilliant and depressing, and Misty's vocals are nothing short of impassioned. Pretty much all of the instrumentation is on point, and the production quality is through the roof, not that I would expect anything less of the Mist Man himself. However, there is something that nags me about this album aside from the sap so thick that it could imprison the dinosaurs for another couple of aeons. That thing is the massive transition in genre from the last album to this one. Well, okay, massive is a bit of an overstatement. What I mean is that on Misty's first album, there were enough elements of indie rock in there to put him safely in the genre of at least partial indie rock. Songs like Hollywood Forever Cemetery Sings had a definite indie rock kick to them, as did the song I'm Writing a Novel. Where these elements were less present, the album took a sort of band of horses feel, a more mellow, plain old indie. Not indie as an unsigned artist, but indie as in the ever-morphing genre that literally no one can define properly. Don't bother, seriously, it's impossible, I've tried. So that was that album. 
And I really liked that album. Even though some of the songs bordered more on folk blues or just plain old blues or whatever indie blues is, the album just had enough rock to it that I could lay claim to it as being in my genre. And the album art was sick, so that's always really important. With this album though, pretty much all of that indie rock vibe is gone. Now it's like 90% western folk, folk blues, or a weird mixture of folk, blues, and jazz. Maybe one or two songs on the album have that definitive vibe of indie rock, one of which being The Ideal Husband. And that's fine, for people that are into that sort of thing. It just means that I wasn't able to connect with this album at all, really. There are some songs that stray just enough into familiar territory for me that I can actually say that I like them, however, such as True Affection and a bit of Chateau Lobby number 4. There's a definite catchiness to them, and indeed for the whole album. Obviously, I think this is a quality album, I just don't personally love the change in genre. And again, to its credit, there are still some elements of that mellow, band of horses kind of indie there. So I don't know, I guess I can kinda dig parts of it, just not the whole thing. So that brings us to the part where I talk about whether or not you should listen to it. Should you? Yeah, definitely. Give it a shot and see if it's your thing. It wasn't mine, but I think that when an album is of a certain distinguishable quality, even when you don't personally enjoy it, you should still give it an honest shot just to see what you're missing out on. I'll say that you're more likely to enjoy it if you can get into folk, western, blues, a very minor touch of indie, and orchestral composition. If none of that is your thing, you may clash with this album. On the other hand, if you're looking for the next Lionel Richie type to cry in the middle of the night to, or make you vomit from sheer viscous tree liquid, this may be a great album for you. It really all depends on what you're looking for in an album. I was not looking for this, I could say that for certain. But either way, it's worth a shot. Fans of his previous album may find the change in genre slightly off-putting, but I think that most of you should be able to look past that. I know I said I dug that album, but not like an insane amount. It was just sort of a moderate affection. I'm not a hardcore Misty fan or anything, so don't just take my word as gold. Not that anyone does, or should. You should definitely not take anything I say as gold. At the very best, it's mostly pyrite or a somewhat shiny penny. At worst, it's what you throw out when you go prospecting. But like I said, give it a try, see if you like it. Once again, the album is... Ugh, I hate this title so much. I Love You, Honey Bear by Father Jean Misty. Please find a less embarrassing nickname for your wife, John. My final rating for the album is 5.5 on a scale of negative 2 to 7, above average and of a high quality. There's always room for improvement though, and I think in this particular case, Misty could use a little less wild orchestral accompaniment and a little more attention to tasteful repetition. While over-repetition can definitely be an issue for some songs, if a song lacks almost any repetition, it can be similarly hindered. Once again, the album is... I Love You, Honey Bear by Father John Misty. You can find it on Spotify or YouTube, probably other places too. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Plesk, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. Come to think of it, that's probably why I'll be spending my Valentine's Day alone playing video games. Sweet! As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by tweeting us at WKNC underscore EOT on Twitter. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snow Verated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film The Fifth Element. The Fifth Element is a sci-fi slash fantasy movie set in the distant future. This movie is more of a well-known movie than most of the movies I review on this show, but in spirit of the upcoming holiday, Valentine's Day, I figured I would try and find a movie that fits the holiday spirit, but does not have the stereotypical characteristics of a Valentine's Day movie. I think I was able to find that with The Fifth Element. Many sci-fi movies are about war and action in a distant future, and that's their main focus. And while there is a lot of action in The Fifth Element, it does a good job of creating a really interesting world and narrative. All of the technology and culture in the movie can sort of be taken as a fact, which kind of comes from the way the characters, sets, and props are designed. The movie doesn't make a huge show out of pointing out some futuristic society. I mean, it's noticeable but I feel like that aspect of the film can sort of be forgotten pretty easily, as it becomes the setting pretty quickly. This allows the fifth element to tell a story in this strange setting without having to explain it. 
The story becomes a basic good versus evil after the introduction to the plot, which is rather long, is played out. I think the simplicity of the story and the simplicity of its message is one of the great things about The Fifth Element. Even though it is very simple, there is a lot to love about the movie. The characters are interesting, the setting is intriguing and complex, the backstory is complete and creates a good base for the movie, and the action sequences are not too overdone. So essentially, I'm just saying the movie is well done. When I say the story is simple, I mean that there is a really laid out goal. The good guy is well defined and sort of stereotypical, and the bad guy is the same way. This gives the movie a basic platform upon which to build its narrative. There are a lot of different aspects to the plot, which could be seen as making the story complicated, but the story is actually just really easy to watch and enjoyable. I never felt bored during the movie because it was also good at building tension and suspense. The unpredictability of any movie is what keeps you watching, but in the case of action scenes, it becomes even more important as it will completely draw the viewer into the stress of the situation. I really enjoyed how well set up the movie is. They took a lot of time making sure that there wasn't just some unexplained apocalyptic event setting all of this in motion, and laid a basis for the characters before proceeding with the plot. This attention to detail is what takes the basic platform that the movie is built on and adds a level to it. The level of originality and the details of this movie are what made the universe feel so real and futuristic. The style is unique enough that the universe could exist on its own. The costume design in particular is iconic to the sci-fi world. The main female character's outfit has become a popular costume for big sci-fi events ever since the movie's release, partly because it's simple. The prop design of the movie is also great. It reminds me slightly of Total Recall, another famous 90s sci-fi movie, and design. The cop cars and uniforms of all the surroundings creates an overall sense of setting. It makes flying cars seem so normal you don't even notice them anymore. Like if you had just seen a random flying car in a 20th century neighborhood or city, it would seem so out of place that it would need to be explained. The fifth element does a good job of making everything just slightly bizarre and futuristic that nothing seems out of place. The great thing about this movie as a choice for Valentine's Day is that you won't feel like it's a Valentine's Day movie until the end. I personally have never liked overly romantic movies, and this is a way to escape that and still get a nice message about love while being entertained by something other than just a couple bonding over random romantic moments. Don't get me wrong though, those types of movies have their time and place, and I think it's safe to say that that time and place is Valentine's Day. But if you are looking for something a little different from usual, and either have never seen or heard of The Fifth Element, or just needed this reminder that it exists and is a fantastic movie about love that you could introduce to someone, I think that The Fifth Element is a good choice. I'm going to give this movie a 7 out of 10 for being enjoyable and original. I really liked the message it sent at the end of the movie, and I highly recommend this as it is definitely among my favorite sci-fi movies. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Snowverated and Eye on the Triangle. If you have any comments on my review, feel free to send an email to publicaffairs at wknc.org. I hope all of you have a good Valentine's Day this weekend. Have a good night. In less than two months at the March 15th primary, North Carolina voters will have their say on a bond referendum that supporters say would offer much-needed funding for the university and community college systems, National Guard, state parks, and water and sewer systems. The Connect NC bond, essentially acting as a loan, would provide $2 billion in investments in 76 counties across the state. Jim Rose explains why the committee is seeking voter approval of the referendum, which can't happen without it. Every single citizen in North Carolina will benefit in some way from the bond. And the reason it is is that $2 billion is going to be spread across a lot of different groups who have statewide impact. Rose and other supporters of Connect NC say there will be no new taxes or tax increases because of the bond, and it will not jeopardize the state's credit rating. While the bond referendum was initiated by Governor Pat McCrory and has bipartisan support, some Democrats are asking the governor not to appear in any ads for the bond since it is a campaign year. Opponents of the bond referendum are concerned about additional debt and what they call political pet projects included in the project plan. More than half of the funds will go towards the UNC system and community colleges, with water and sewer infrastructure and local parks receiving the next largest amount. Rose says it's necessary for the state to keep up with the population increase of 2 million people seen in the last 15 years, which is the approximate population of the state of Nebraska.
Now we've got an entire state in terms of population that has moved here. We've obviously had a stress on our infrastructure, and so we've got to be able to take care of a growing population base. The state will pay back the bond over the next 20 to 25 years. It's been 15 years since the last bond was authorized. Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Australia's Prime Minister has admitted government efforts to help improve the lives of Indigenous Australians are not on track in key areas. Prime Minister Turnbull gave his first response to the annual Closing the Gap report on Wednesday. The report tracks the progress on targets to reduce inequality between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Turnbull said a concerted effort was needed as the Closing the Gap initiative's success rate was mixed. It is undeniable that progress against targets has been variable, he wrote in the report's introduction. The report said that a target to have the gap in mortality rates for Indigenous children under five within a decade was on track. Smoking rates had reduced and the number of Indigenous students finishing high school had almost doubled since the 1990s. But the target to have gaps in unemployment and expectancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians was not on track. Indigenous leaders have called for stronger engagement with communities in order to deliver the most appropriate policy. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner Mick Gouda co-chairs the Aboriginal-led Close the Gap public awareness campaign. Mr. Gouda says the government needed to focus on speaking to communities to ensure its policies would have an impact. Health services have always been a problem for Indigenous communities, Mr. Gouda said. Language and cultural barriers, along with remoteness, made it challenging for some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to seek care until it was too late. Yauru leader Patrick Dodson said Indigenous communities did not have a buy-in to policies, and without proper participation, closing the gap was doomed to fail or would only have a small impact. He compared the program to just changing the tablecloth on a table covered in ants without realizing that ants were also eating at the legs. The Closing the Gap report calls for both political parties to make Indigenous health a top priority going into the election, rumored to be held later in the year. The report also recommends including new targets to address the high Indigenous rate of incarceration, a focus on disability support, and a national inquiry into racism and the institutional racism in the healthcare system. Prime Minister Turnbull has called for a doubling of efforts to build trust and develop respectful relationships in order to provide more effective local solutions. He also promoted his central theme of an ideas boom, urging indigenous businesses and entrepreneurs to take advantage of government programs. Over in South Africa, traditional leaders have expressed disquiet over Chief Manla Mandela's conversion to Islam. The Congress of Traditional Leaders in South Africa think that being Muslim could affect his ability to uphold Xhosa traditions. Manla Mandela, who converted to Islam late last year, got married in a Cape Town mosque last week. He inherited his position as chief from his grandfather, Nelson Mandela. He is believed to have converted in order to marry Rabia Clark, a Muslim. This is the fourth marriage of Mr. Mandela at age 42. Contralesa spokesperson Chief Muelo Nonconyane said Mr. Mandela's new religious affiliation could present a conflict for his subjects. There is nothing wrong with the traditional leader following any faith he chooses, but we are concerned about whether he will be able to continue performing his responsibilities as a chief, he says. Traditional chiefs sometimes lead Thanksgiving rituals for ancestors, which would include presenting slaughtered animals to them in a prayer. These practices are not in line with the beliefs of most Muslims. Chief Mandela may find himself at a crossroads, forced to choose between his new bride and his loyal subjects. Mandela, who prides himself on being a man of tradition, may face some tough questions over his decision to convert to Islam, not because of the religion itself, but because it creates uncertainty about the chief's loyalties. And it seems the secrecy has caused some concerns within the Abathembu royal family, who now question the chief's commitment to upholding the time-honored traditions. In rural South Africa, away from modern life, traditional leaders play a key role in their communities. This could be in the form of ceremonies or day-to-day -day decisions on how to resolve conflicts, while this is the chief's fourth marriage, it is the first to pit him against tradition, the very core of who he is. Nonconyane says Mr. Mandela has already gone against the tradition by assuming his wife's culture. He says it's the woman's job, according to African tradition, to become a part of the family she marries into. Mandela married Miss Clark in a ceremony that was not attended by members of the royal family, leading to reports that they were not happy with the union. Mr. Mandela, however, seems content with this decision. He says, although Rabia and I were raised in different cultural and religious traditions, our coming together reflects what we have in common. We are South Africans. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines.
good afternoon to all you listeners out there. This is the Community Calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. So first up on the calendar is Black History Square Off. This will be a friendly competition where teams will compete against one another to name the top black history-related survey answers given by the North Carolina State University students, faculty, and staff. This is a fun and interactive opportunity for your organization or group of friends to showcase your skills while learning facts related to black history. This event will be taking place Wednesday, today, at 6 p.m. in Park Shops, Room 210. Alpha Sig will be out in the Brickyard this Friday selling Valentine's Day flowers. These roses will sell for $3 a stem and all proceedings will go to the Women's Center of Wake County. Roses can be pre-ordered by emailing your name, student ID, and order size to alphasigphilin at gmail.com. That is alphasigphilin at gmail.com. Next Monday... In Tally Student Union, there will be a display paying tribute to the past black scientists in agriculture and the outlook for future black scientists in agriculture. This display will be on from 10 to 6 on Monday, February 15th. Furthermore, the tribute will focus on the future directions of what black scientists can achieve as well as contribute to agricultural disciplines. Our Three Winners Memorial, A Day of Light, is an event honoring the memories of Dia Barakat, Yusur Abu Salah, and Razan Abu Salah on the one-year anniversary of their death. The memorial will include a call to prayer, guest speakers, and a candlelight remembrance. This will be in front of the Stafford Commons at 6 p.m. tonight, Wednesday, February 10th. Tomorrow, NC State alumnus Muhammad Musa will present Shattered Glass, a 45-minute performance that fuses poetry, images, and video to pay tribute to Dia, Usar, and Razan. The performance is scheduled for 7 p.m. Thursday, February 11th at the Stewart Theater in Tally Student Union. The goal of Shattered Glass is to continue the conversation about the tragedy and to reflect on what it means for our communities. The piece is also a commemoration for the victims and their legacies. This has been the Community Calendar. I'm Peter Spazzeni, wishing you all a great week ahead. Hi. Up next, we look at how a community pours out love when tragedy hits. One year ago, the Wolfpack community lost three of its members, Dea Barakat, Yasser Abusala, and her sister, Razan Abusala. Now, a year later, I spoke with Fatima Hadaji, a senior in communications and program manager for the Lighthouse Project, an organization created in the wake of the tragedy. We talked about the events being held in their memory, the Muslim-American narrative, and how she is remembering them today. What's your role in the Lighthouse Project? So I am the program manager. So what I do is I work on any sort of program for events or um, designing projects in the community that have to do with our mission in general. And so that pretty much has to do with reclaiming the Muslim American narrative through advocacy and community development and outreach. Okay, so what would you say the Muslim narrative is now and what are you trying to change it to? So what I focus on a lot is the fact that the Muslim identity is one that entirely roots from, obviously, Islam. Islam is a religion that has been historically known to not have been changed through its holy book and and a lot of their traditions. And so although that religion can be one that is that is seen as uniform, Muslims, however, are very different and very diverse. And so what the Muslim American narrative has been is simply... I think the way it existed as of a year ago was in the hands of people who defined it as very negative. The narrative was being told by people who were not in the Muslim experience, who were not part of the communities or had never worked with the communities. Instead, it was being defined by, you know, terrorist attacks, by political agendas and things that were very inaccurate and and didn't have to do with the Muslim lifestyle. And then I think really this past year, We've been able to open up that conversation, um, you know, both through the Lighthouse Project, but also really as a nation uh, to talk about who are Muslims, who are they actually. And I think the Yusur and Razan were able to to tell that story. And really, it is they're individuals who are passionate. They're not always passionate about the same things, but they are people who work to contribute to their communities. They're people who are citizens of this country who were born here, just like so many others 
who take on that American identity as well and are just as diverse as the rest of the nation. So, so yeah, usually what I answer that, that narrative to be is that it's just something, it's just a multifaceted narrative, I guess. It's one that includes millions, billions of people. So it's going to be different. But at the same time, it, it cannot be something that's told by people who haven't experienced it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you knew Dia and Yusuf and Razan? I did, yeah. Um, so they were they were friends of mine. I was very lucky to call them friends. Um, I always say that really anyone who got to know or even just met Dia, Yusuf, or Razan would really truly be able to call them a friend because of how kind and compassionate they were, how considerate they were. What events are happening now this week in the anniversary of their death? So, so far, we wanted to keep uh, February 10th a, a day that wasn't too demanding, one that wasn't asking the community, especially those who might be grieving again, might be, you know, kind of in a moment of sadness or, or having a difficult day to have to come out and do something very demanding. Mm -hmm. And so... We decided to do uh, two things, a press conference that would be speaking to the media about about the story of the Ayyusar and Razan, but especially about what are we doing from now? How can we move forward? Then the second part is doing an award ceremony through the Lighthouse Project. And so um, we're going to be awarding three individuals in the community for their service towards uh, both the nation and the Triangle area and the Raleigh community and recognizing that there are leaders here who are really contributing to that Muslim American narrative. And they actually might not even be Muslim, but they're people who are really helping in um, creating a healthy environment for marginalized groups. And one of them being the Muslim American group. We are also participating in the memorial that's happening on campus tonight at 6 p.m., and uh, that's going to be an event that really just hopes to bring everybody together to remember and honor the legacy of, of the Ayyusar and Razan. So, yeah, that'll be in tally, and that's something that the university is holding. So that's something that I think is an event that's really for the students, especially to kind of remember the amazing feeling that really was the vigils of last year, which were ones that reminded us about, you know, how... Uh, supportive our community can be, how unified they can be. And what is Shattered Glass? Shattered Glass is a multimedia spoken word performance by an artist named Mohammed Musa, who is uh, really very talented and has been working on and works on many projects that are very influential and shed light on um, really important topics. Mm -hmm. So that event is going to be one, again, hosted by NC State University, hoping to get the story out to students, to the community, and even remind people who might have known the Ayyusar Razan of the importance of what happened and the, the fact that it matters and that we need to work together, together to make sure we're doing something that progresses us from uh, dealing with the hatred and, and the negativity that, that was part of the tragedy. How are you remembering them? So one of the the biggest things I keep doing um, is pretty much going back to what I was doing at whatever time during today last year. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing because usually, I mean, yesterday, if you had asked me what were you doing on February 9th a year ago, I wouldn't remember. But today I, I remember it very clearly. So I keep remembering, you know, going and grabbing lunch and running into Razan and texting Yosor and just experiences that I had with them that were very regular and that were ones where, you know, you you don't think about if you're going to lose someone. You simply think sometimes I'm I've I noticed before this that I was mistaken with thinking a lot of things were permanent that actually weren't in my life. And so I think about that. I, I've been thinking about who they were. And I also have been making sure to kind of keep in touch through social media, looking at different people's posts and getting their perspectives, um, remembering how impactful they were. But one of the biggest things I think is that, and this is something even the families really want, is that they're not necessarily memorialized in a way that is um, creating them to be more than human, I guess. They were people who were very, very good people, but that was manifested through 
the Islam that they followed, the the faith that they really held closely, and then also the lessons they gained from their community, from their family. So they were people, and there are so many good people that we should be celebrating and acknowledging, remembering. It's just that it is so important to understand that we should be supporting, you know, causes that they did too. We should be doing something that moves us forward, but not necessarily just kind of sitting and and memorializing the individual, putting them on any sort of pedestal. What's their legacy, and how do you think people should be changed going forward? This is a day where we do remember what happened, but I would encourage others to allow it to be a reminder that we have to be active when we see mistreatment of an identity. And I think the Muslim identity right now, especially the Muslim American identity, is experiencing that mistreatment, that marginalization. And um, it's something that we all have to kind of put our hands in and help with and make sure that we're being educated, we're learning about uh, others, and that we're also making sure to, even if it may not be our identity personally, to defend each other and to create a community that is healthy. And sometimes that seems so out of reach, but I think through my experience this past year, it's been something that's very clearly possible. Um, There are so many organizations and so many people interested in contributing to the effort of reclaiming the Muslim American narrative, of reclaiming really any narrative that may be lost to discrimination or um, mistreatment. And so it's very much possible. We just all have to make sure that we're doing something about it. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mirtha Donastorg. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. So Ian... What are you doing for Valentine's Day? I think I'm going to have a nice romantic dinner at Waffle House, a candlelight dinner. Do they? <laughs> I think that's the most romantic of dinners, Ian. Uh, second only to the TV dinner I'll be eating in front of my non-cable TV. That sounds beautiful, you guys. For my Valentine's Day, I'm going to be recuperating from the night before at Double Barrel Benefit. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be Desarc, Schooner, Museum Mouth, Naked Naps, and it's going to be a face melting show. So on Valentine's Day, I'll be trying to unmelt my face. I recommend ice. We'd like to thank Saif Hassan, Jake Winners, Nikita Chandalupudi, Marissa Jordan, Cameron Dolacek, Nick Weaver, Peter Svizeni, Fatima Hedaj, and Michael Ashburn for contributing. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you've hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on Twitter at EOT-WKNC. Or rather, WKNC-EOT. And be sure to check out our blog and podcast at WKNC-EOT.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Yarthodonna Storg. And I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Nick Weaver.